Hello, everyone. You're listening to Transaction Trending, the official podcast of ETA. I'm Jason Oxman. Thanks for tuning in. If you've tapped, dipped, or swiped your credit card recently, chances are it was on a Verifone terminal. For over 30 years, Verifone has been a staple of payment solutions for merchants around the world. As we often discuss on this podcast, the hardware market in payments is changing. Once a simple magnetic stripe card acceptance device, payment equipment today must be dynamic, powerful combinations of hardware and software solutions. Here to discuss the changing dynamic in the payments technology industry and innovations at Verifone that are driving new products and the payments ecosystem forward is Drago Deserve, Vice President, Product Management at Verifone. Drago, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Let's talk a little bit about payments history. Uh, Verifone, as I mentioned, has been around for more than three decades, started in the business as a payment card acceptance terminal, but of course is very different today. Looking back over the history of Verifone, what historically drove payments security decisions and implementations in, in Verifone hardware? Sure. Good question. In my early days in the payments ecosystems, and that, that goes back to the early 2000s, my colleagues and I were specifically aware of the value of the cardholder data and the potential for data theft. That said, the internet was new. The thought of perpetually connected devices was really just coming into the space. The idea of true high-speed transaction processing was still a novelty, and a threat of data theft was really considered minor. So what drove payment security? Um, uh, ultimately, the constant and escalating threat of data breaches and the potential business-killing reality of the impact of a major breach on a company ultimately drove the adoption of payment security. To perhaps provide a little bit more background, my first interaction with encryption and tokenization was probably eight or nine years ago when I was on the acquire side of the business. At that point in time, the conversation was almost completely around enablement of existing payment systems through format and packet-preserving encryption. Format and packet-preserving encryption was a very big idea because, as we know, changing any single part of the payments ecosystem is hard, but you have to change three or four different components to handle a different format of data and a different data set. The adoption cycle would have literally stretched out over years and years. So plug-and-play encryption was really the technical leap that allowed for many environments to relatively quickly adopt the transaction-level encryption as enabled from the point of interaction, the payment terminal. That's interesting. You mentioned that uh, encryption tokenization services talked about uh, many, many years ago, but not really part of the common discussion until the last couple of years. And of course, everybody in the payments ecosystem talks about encryption and uh, and tokenization a lot more today. Do you think it was uh, those high-profile data breaches uh, that we saw, starting with uh, Target and Home Depot and a number of others uh, a few years ago, that really accelerated the conversation around security and drove uh, more investment and more thought about these new systems? Was that really the impetus for, uh, for the focus on payment security uh, that we see today? There's, there's effectively two kind of inputs into the the theme that uh, or perhaps the the environment that we're in today and those inputs are are um, effectively ubiquitous connectivity and if we think about back into the early 2000s um, you know in, in really the earliest major data breaches were we go back to about 2005 
and there was a humongous breach at that point in time, and we don't talk about it or think about it much at this point in time. And then that was followed up and, and by a major retailer breach in 2007. But um, as you look at it, the access to these big systems with big data um, was enabled via the Internet and ubiquitous connectivity into a multiple uh, multiple set of devices, including POS systems. And so uh, I actually kind of go back further in time, Jason, into a point in time where we're looking at, say, you know, the 05 to 07, and that's when people started going, wait, this is really broken. I mean, we can't pass this you know, marginally, well, valuable information. It's not marginally valuable. It's really valuable information around um, in a laissez-faire way. We have to be thinking about it as an asset. And if you're a retailer or a merchant, that asset has to be protected. You can't can't just throw it around. So, um, you know, back in the early 2000s, we were looking at this stuff and going, okay, well, we've got to, you know, password protect it, and then that wasn't enough. And then we've got to encrypt it, um, you know, when stationary. That's not enough. Then we have to encrypt it in motion, and that starts to get better. And then we have to get rid of it completely. So that's kind of the trend. That's very interesting. And, and, and of course, since those technologies, encryption, tokenization, uh, have been around for so long, uh, we continue to face threats uh, in the payments hardware uh, in particular, uh, and you're deploying new and even more innovative technologies today, the latest of which is uh, something called uh, AES Duckput. Um, and I, I know you're well positioned to talk about it. It's something that not a lot of people in the industry have heard enough about. Uh, it's a new uh, security key management standard uh, that Verifone co-designed. Can you tell us about AES Duckput and and uh, what you're doing to bring it to the market? Good question. Let's start by unpacking AES Duckput. AES is Advanced Encryption Standard, and Duckput is Derived Unique Key Per Transaction. This is in comparison to TripleDes Duckput, which people are likely more familiar with, as TripleDes is the encryption technology is used today to secure debit pin entry. So clearly the difference here is this is the swapping in AES for triple does. The long and the short of the difference is that AES is much more secure than triple does because of the increased key length used in AES. So as you you also asked the question in regards to, to bringing that to market, um, ultimately encryption is a, a two-sided transaction. There's a, a point where it's encrypted and a point where it's decrypted. So we'll be bringing this, uh, this solution set to market with our acquire partners, and so they'll be doing uh, encryption for the data points that, that matter, right? So uh, we encrypt in the terminal, and we'll be decrypting at the acquire. So who is this targeted to? Who's the, uh, who's the audience that currently doesn't have something like this available? Is it uh, where, where in the sales channel? Are we talking about uh, ISOs selling this to merchants directly? You're working with acquirers, and then the acquirers are working with the merchants. What's the, uh, what's the go-to-market strategy for this? You know, it's AES Duckbutt in itself is is an improvement in the technology over um, existing data level encryption. And this is important to note because what what we're actually doing is not going after a new market. Um, what we're doing is replacing the existing infrastructure with something that's better, faster, stronger, and actually kind of cheaper. And so when we look at it, what we're trying to do with this is, is A, number one, when we look at the triple does duck pod components, that technology is fairly dated. It came out um, in the late 
1970s, right? And so as computing power goes up, the key strength and the, the, the crypto period for that technology and the way that we employ it is about 1 million transactions. As we start to think about AES DuckPod, we change out that uh, the key length and the encryption standard. And the result of that is, is that the crypto period uh, migrates up to over 2 billion transactions. And so really this is, is less about, you know, hey, big box merchant, you need to be thinking about adding encryption. It's more about we are partnering with the ecosystem to ensure that we continue to protect the cardholder data in a very, very appropriate way that's very secure and um, is effectively the state of the industry. So it's more about improving it than it is about bringing something new. So you mentioned that the encryption takes place at the uh, point-of-sale device. Is this a uh, an update to software uh, powering the device? Is it a uh, in order to take advantage of this new encryption technology as a merchant, do I need to install a new Verifone terminal? How's uh, how's this work with stuff that's already out in the field? Yeah, good question. Um, there's a couple questions that you baked in there. One was around, you know, does it take more power? Um, two, do we need to, to update equipment from um, from a processing perspective? Um, you know, what's needed? So, so fundamentally, um, the solution will be delivered to a client by a software update and a key update, and. Um, and so these things can absolutely be provided in the field today. We've, we've gone through a, a variety of technologies and, and worked with PCI PTS to ensure that we can get files down to the devices in, in a secure manner and transmit uh, encryption keys in a secure manner down to the devices and had all of that improved. The, the bigger note here is that as we we put this new software down on the devices, um, the reality is, is we actually use less processing CPU time uh, in order to do the encryption. And so uh, that's just simply important because as, we, as we're as talking about parts of a second to make people happy in the, part, in the, the middle of, an of a credit card transaction, um, the parts of the second in order to do really, really safe encryption uh, is very, very small with a stuck putt and actually smaller than it would take over a, a lesser technology like triple dust stuck putt, um, and, but providing for a higher level security. You're listening to Transaction Trending, the podcast of ETA. We're talking to Drago Deserve, who's the vice president of product management at Verifone. Drago, how does this new encryption technology upgrade uh, fit with the EMV migration? Because, of course, merchants have uh, in this country uh, been, over the course of the last couple of years, working hard to get chip reading capability uh, into their point of sale. Uh, and, uh, of course, EMV protects against certain things, uh, most notably counterfeit cards. Uh, but, of course, encryption is a different technology, protects against different things. So uh, if you're talking to a merchant or talking to a service provider to a merchant about the importance of the AES uh, encryption capabilities and the response is, well, I just did EMV, uh, what do I need this for? How do you explain the difference between uh, AES and, and EMV? Yeah, great question. I've actually had this question probably hundreds of times over the last maybe four years or so. Um, the common misconception is that um, with EMV, that encryption is not needed. At the end of the day, that's simply not true. 
EMV cards transmit the card data in the clear. That that is to say that the card data as transmitted from the card over to the payment terminal um, is just a 16-digit PAN number with four-digit expiration date that you or I could read. There's you know nothing special about that. It does. Uh, enhance that data with a dynamic CVV or a dynamic um, one-time code that will prove that the real chip is actually present in that transaction. But other than that, the data is clear. And since it's clear, it could be breached just like any other clear text card data. So at the end of the day, AES TechPack continues to complement EMB like previous in- encryption solutions uh, yet more securely. And I mean, we have to think about it in a way that um, they're complementary technologies that go hand in hand rather than ENV or encryption replaces one or the other. So that's interesting in that, uh, particularly for larger merchants who understand the risk they face uh, and the benefits of protecting their ecosystem uh, more broadly than just against counterfeit cards. Uh, what about for small and medium merchants? Uh, obviously, for small and medium enterprises, uh, you know, payments security is important, but at the same time, they have to worry about their margins. They have to worry about their, uh, their bottom line, if you will. So uh, again, you probably get this question a lot from the SMB segment. How important is it for them to deploy AES encryption capabilities, uh, particularly as, as SMBs move into omnichannel? Uh, is it more important for them or equally important than it is for large enterprises? So there's kind of two questions baked in there, um, one associated with adoption cycle in small businesses, and two, how does it impact omnichannel? Um, the adoption cycle associated with small and medium businesses um, is pretty robust at this point in time. While we find that, you know, I would say 99% of tier one merchants or 99% of the top 200 merchants in the United States have deployed some transaction or terminal level encryption, um, the implementation rate of encryption is probably more like 60% within tier two and tier four. And so there are opportunities to go into that space. We've been serving that space through both, you know, integrated and standalone solutions for quite a while now with our processing partners and acquirers on the other end. And so we're all, you know, effectively the whole ecosystem, once that small business, small medium business to, to adopt encryption technologies, because at the end of the day, if, you know, you're a franchisee of a QSR or a retail shop and your franchisee is, is breached, you're breached. It's your brand. You're, you're the one that's on the page, the front page of the paper. And so it has been, you know, an ecosystem move, um, and we want to make the economics work for everybody. Now, when we pivot that question over into omnichannel and the securitization of omnichannel, um, fundamentally that has to do with just simply buy anywhere and return anywhere. Um, these two simple scenarios are addressed via securitization at presentment and tokenization. When I talk about securitization at presentment, I, I mean that the encryption of the card data um, for card present transactions and the employment of other mechanisms like hosted payment pages or embedded JavaScript for solutions for card not present transactions. Tokenization, on the other hand, allows for the replacement of card data with a devalued token of the original data. This facilitates the return anywhere aspect of Omnichannel as a stored token of the original credit card um, can then be used to process a refund. So, I, so perhaps back to the question, with stronger, more efficient encryption with a longer crypto period, AES TechPad ultimately improves security 
and efficiency of omni-channel solutions for really every size of business. Um, but but we absolutely want to include small and medium businesses in that as well. I thought that was very interesting, the statistic, uh, 99% of large enterprises deploying some kind of encryption technology, but only 60% of, of smaller businesses. Is it really the case that we need to, as an industry, do a better job helping small and medium enterprises understand that they are at risk of uh, of data breaches, they are at risk of being targeted by cyber criminals um, as much as a large enterprise is? Absolutely. Um, you know, one of the questions is why are small businesses underserved in the market? And, you know, in some cases, um, you know, if you have a dial-up terminal that's doing standalone, the data threat there is very, very, very small, right? Like, how do you how do you steal 50 transactions a day coming from a dial-up terminal that's not connected to the internet in a in a feasible way? Um, so, so as that quickly swaps out to um, smart point of sales uh, or solutions that are connected perpetually, the adoption cycle of encryption just comes right into it. Um, the other part of it is, is that, you know, a lot of these merchants are not, they're in the business of selling food or T-shirts or ice cream or whatever. They, they're really, you know, if they bought a system five years ago and it works, they don't want to think about it. They don't want to call anybody. They don't want to do anything on that front. What they want to do is, you know, sell food, sell T-shirts, sell ice cream. And so having somebody come in and, and ask for lots of money to upgrade a system, um, you know, to you know, to somebody that is a specialist in the pizza industry or the ice cream industry is asking a lot when they're typically working on, you know, fairly thin margins. And every dollar out of the pocket or out of the system – to pay for a new solution quite literally comes out of their pocket. So there's a reluctance to invest, um, you know, if you're a small business person because it is a very personal um, event. And another thing those businesses, large and small, are worried about is the data they collect about their customers, which is obviously important to their business. Uh, we've seen a brand new regulatory regime uh, start in Europe as we're having this conversation. We're about to see the effective date of the GDPR uh, initiative. And of course, the European Union has also adopted PSD2, uh, which is designed to uh, facilitate uh, API-based access to uh, banking services uh, by competitors. Verifone has a global business, and I know a lot of the work that you do at Verifone is focused on helping your clients uh, meet these new regulations that, again, have been adopted in Europe, but have a lot of implications for U.S. companies as well if they have any business connections or customers or collect data or share data or sell data uh, about European consumers. Uh, can you talk to us a little bit about uh, the work you're doing to help uh, Verifone customers uh, address and meet these new regulations? Sure. Personally, I believe that the payment services directive, which is the PSD2, standardization efforts are likely good for all companies that operate in the European space. Um, these standardization efforts should decrease the need to develop many different security solutions. And, you know, to be quite honest, in the United States, we have four or five or maybe even six um, encryption technologies that we employ today. So if we get down to, to one solution that we have to maintain that is 
uh, ultra secure like a, a stock pot will be in a really good position. So I I personally um, you know am a fan of this. I, I think that it reduces some cost. Um, I'm not worried about any competitive threat threats on that front. As for general data protection regulation, the GDPR. The reality is that requiring data to be housed locally makes sense in that a government would want to be fairly certain that their citizens' data is protected, and that is likely only enforceable if it isn't exported. We may find that while the technology is used to encrypt and tokenize transactions can be transferred from one region to another, the overarching infrastructure leverage may be limited in order to comply with GDPR. This limitation on leverage can mean that local infrastructure may need to be utilized. Clearly, this is good for businesses that serve the sector, but maybe more expensive in the long run. Uh, so as we sort of find gravity of the solutions are brought to a particular market like Europe, um, we, we're going to basically eliminate the ability to use uh, you know, maybe some of the bigger cloud data stores that are going to be extremely cheap. So it sounds like this has implications for the U.S. as well. Uh, and are you uh, also looking for opportunities to help Verifone customers here in the U.S. understand how they need to adopt their approach to, to meet these new regulations in Europe? Yeah, we, you know, obviously we're constantly monitoring these types of events and, and our on-the-ground folks in the European theater are, are very, very close to it. Um, you know, our lawyers are, are wondering about things like, hey, is um, the IP address that your computer is using in order to initiate an e-commerce transaction, is that considered PII? Well, okay, you know, so if my IP address, and I'm not a European citizen, it's a European um, commerce site, you know, what happens with that data? And, or if I'm a European citizen and I start from a, uh, a US-based um, computer, and transmit a transaction into uh, a European e-commerce site, what happens with all this? So there is a lot of questions and ground to cover on that front, and definitely more questions than the answers today. Um, I, you know, as with the Durban Amendment, as with, you know, any of these other um, massive leg legislation, and I call it massive more an impact, not in the number of words, but these massive legislation events um, cause, you know, a tremendous amount of friction in the environment for a while until we figure out what it actually means. And then we get to deployment like we did with Common AID in association with the Durban Amendment. So a lot to uh, think about if you're a merchant about the use of data and uh, security at the point of sale. You know, one thing that uh, I, I think is always interesting to ask our guests about, and Drago, I want to ask you about it now, is, uh, you know, if you had an opportunity to sit down with uh, a merchant that really didn't know a lot about payment security or perhaps was curious about the latest developments and, and they said, you know, what are, what are just one or two things that I should be ensuring that I do uh, to protect my customers against the possibility of theft of my information, theft of my data, a breach of my system. What do you say to a merchant who's looking for that advice from you? Yeah, the you know the, the big merchants don't need a whole lot of help, right? They've they've got professionals um, that are thinking about this every day. But the small merchants, you know, we, we we still talk about what encryption is and to utilize encryption in their environment. It, it seems almost too obvious, but again, if we go back to the scenario where the, the person owns a, a restaurant, a t-shirt shop, an ice cream shop, they're thinking about ice cream or pizza or t-shirts. 
you're not thinking about encryption. And so as we start to do that, you know, I, I would, you know, and when I talk to people, right, I give them an unsolicited advice from time to time. And it's, you know, hey, we need to turn this technology on. This isn't a, um, you know, do I really have to do it? It's a must-have requirement that you have to do today. Um, we do find that, you know, the other thing that kind of is out there is to ensure that you know, we're thinking about how do we maintain these systems? Um, I brought this point up a little bit before, which is if the system works fine, I don't want to, as a merchant, to call somebody up and have them come out and work on the system, bring it down, and do a bunch of other things and take money out of my pocket. Um, but but in today's environment, we absolutely have to be thinking about, hey, there are opportunities to decrease costs if I stay current um, by either making sure that I'm not exposing myself to costs associated with risk or downgrades because I'm not covering the right set of AIDs or, you know, um, or perhaps I'm only doing mag strike transactions instead of uh, contact and contactless. Um, so so why I, I tell people is, A, number one, right, you have to have encryption turned on if it's a, it's a fairly new person, and, and B, number two, you've got to be thinking about these environments a little differently. They have to be maintained over time, and you have to be thinking about what that means and how you would do that. So finding partners in that space is, is really, you know, that are talking that way is actually really important. So let's leave uh, today with your crystal ball look at the future. You've been involved with uh, payment security and specifically at Verifone for a, a very long time and have seen a lot of changes in the industry. Let's talk about the next five to ten years. What do you think is going to be the next big thing that we're going to be talking about five or ten years from now in payment security? Yeah, these questions are always fun um, simply because we, we get to pull out the crystal ball and, and hopefully I'm more right than wrong, especially since I'm in, in product management. Um, I have a, a really good friend that's in um, it's in the breach remediation business and, and business is good for him right now, right? Uh, he, he gets to travel all over the place and see a lot of different cities and work with a lot of people. They're never happy to see him, but, uh, but he's always happy to be there. When I talk to him, you quickly learn that the size of the security wall doesn't really matter, um, that the, the, the criminals and the bad guys are going to eventually go over, under, around, or through, regardless of your best efforts. Um, this is and will continue to result in the employment of schemes that, that ultimately devalue the data. Um, we've seen this over many, many years in the, in the industry, right? And, and the first incarnations of this were associated with the utilization of CVV and AVS for transaction security. Um, the employment of those technologies was intended to decrease the value of the static primary account number or the static PAN. This trend has continued through the utilization of, of dynamic CVV with chip card again. It's to devalue the data. Now we are seeing the utilization of tokens as a replacement for primary account numbers when a card number is provisioned to a user's phone. And so if we think about schemas like Google Wallet and, and you know Apple Pay and, and those things, they're not getting a valid 16-digit card number that can reside on a piece of plastic provisioned to a phone. Rather, they're getting a token. It can only exist in a phone. Um, it's, a, it's a weird sort of environment to think about. But in these environments, if somebody steals that token that was presented for payment, there's really nothing they can do with it because the token can't 
exist as a card number and, and it can exist as a manual entry, it just simply won't work because the issuers on the other side will realize that this was a um, a digitally provisioned token to go into a wallet. It can only be transmitted you know, validly from a phone with a dynamic general, generated CVV. So, you know, the EMBCO has, has come about as standard um, for devaluing the data and the tokenizations into phones. That will absolutely continue. Um, but to perhaps put the information in the context of this discussion, you know, the, the industry will continue to en enhance its security because of the fact that the walls aren't perfect. doesn't mean that we shouldn't make them. But we will continue to see more and more solutions where the data that is presented has either no value at all or the window that the data is valuable is incredibly small or confined to a single transaction. That's the future of security. The crystal ball from Drago Deserve, Vice President of Product Management at Verifone. Drago, thanks so much for spending time with us on Transaction Trending today. Absolutely. It was a lot of fun. Thanks, Jason. Thanks to Drago and Verifone for joining us on this podcast. You can listen to and subscribe to Transaction Trending wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find us on Stitcher Radio, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and other podcast platforms. We'll be continuing the conversation on payments innovation with Drago and other industry leaders at Transact Tech Atlanta on June 12th. Visit electran.org to secure your spot to this high-impact payments forum. I hope to see you there. I'm Jason Oxman. Thanks again for listening to Transaction Trending. This has been Transaction Trending, a podcast powered by the Electronic Transactions Association. ETA is the leading trade association for the payments industry, representing over 500 payments technology companies worldwide. This episode was produced by Laura Hubbard and Patrick Nolan. It was recorded, edited, and mixed by Patrick Nolan. For more information on the Electronic Transactions Association, visit electran.org.